Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santee, here today with another version of our panel discussions that we did a lot of in um, the summer of deep lockdown last year. Um, and I just thought it was fun. So we're going to try it again and see if any of you have time to listen to this longer version. <laughs> um, so I've got uh, Liz Moasco, who is muted Hello. with her baby. Oh, there she is. <laughs> and Lisa Murphy. Hello. Richard Cohen. Hello. And Carol Murray. Hello. Making her panel discussion debut. Woohoo! So excited. Thank you. (laughs) So we're going to start with um, an article by Peter Moss, who everyone should immediately look up and find all that you can. Um, Lisa and I have been taking a deep dive. Um, I know, um, uh, Carol, you mentioned that you'd been watching some YouTube videos that he's got out there. So um, we'll start the podcast by saying, look for all the Peter Moss you can find. Um, the article, I think it's a, more of like an editorial or like the intro article to a journal with a theme, um, but it's called Beyond the Investment Narrative. It comes from Contemporary Issues in Early Childhood. Um, and we will, we will look for ways to make this available to those of you who are listening to this podcast so you can see the full article. Um, but to start with, we're going to, we're going to do a quick nutshell of what he means when he's talking about the investment narrative, right? Is that what we decided? I've already forgotten all the pre-recording conversation, um, but I, what, what he seems to be talking about is this idea that we should invest in early childhood because of all the stuff we get down the road as, um, not, not so much in terms of because of who the people are in early childhood programs and what they need now but because of what we can get out of it later, trying to make um, sort of an economic argument. And so in some points, some places it's a social justice argument, but it's still about way down the road, what we can get from this. So if anyone wants to add anything to that, to that nutshell, go right ahead. Well, I I, go on Carol. Oh, there's lots of ways we could sort of, um, uh, wordsmith that and think about the things that we've gotten really comfortable saying like children are the future invest in children now because it will pay off in the long run um, what were you going to say Lisa well I I like to point out the articles itself is from 2013 the journal article so I think there's some date context there that that when it comes to the phrase it's been around for a while, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't some new thing we've been talking about. The first time it came on my radar was with Hickman, I think his last yes. name was. Hickman. Hickman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was at a conference where he was Skyping in. Before you had to Skype in, he yeah. Skyped in. I was like, ooh. And, uh, 
And uh, that was when I first heard that what it was one to 14, the $1 invested now saves $14. And he really made that the economic argument and uh, the the prison argument, you know, and, and that was the first time it came on my radar. So that, that's just really what I wanted to toss out right now to see where that might go with anybody. Well, I guess I would add that um, yeah, I mean, the argument has been around since I think I heard it around the same time you did, Lisa. And there's some value to that argument, I think, in terms of convincing the people in power to better fund our field. Uh, it certainly appeals to to those people. And I, I hope we'll talk about the demographics of those people, because <laughs> I think that's relevant. But um, oh, I forgot my brilliant point. Um yeah, it's gone. Sorry. Okay. So let me well, interject because I'm wondering. I'm wondering if. This oh, is- I remember. Okay. <laughs> just, you just, it just takes one of the women to start talking, and Maybe then we'll the other there. thing I think we'll we'll talk about that I hope we'll talk about besides why the economic investment narrative is relevant to the people in power and who they are. Um, I, I think the other reason why, even though this article was written in 2013, why it's still relevant today is because we've heard all of our political leaders all of these years, including our current president, talk about investing in early childhood education and care, um, and that the way to do that is to create a system of universal Mm pre-K. And that has um, raised mine and Heather's hackles in the past, but we've never had a chance to talk about why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've um, always appreciated that the investment narrative was uh, something in my tool belt. It's, it's like the cocktail party scenario. If, if, if dropping, if going down that path gets that person to listen to the importance of early childhood and everything that comes with that, yeah. then I like knowing that I can, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the one I like to default to. Um, but I do think it's important to have various, various roads to get to the same kind of important mm-hmm. conversation, depending on right. who you're sitting with. Right. Well, and I think it's also important that Peter Moss's article uh, um, really says that um, it's great that we can use that narrative, but uh, it's faulty inherently. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to jump in with the quote. And also I'm going to say, Lisa, uh, Liz and Carol, <laughs> you may need to wave your arms if you have something you want to say with the rest of us here. Sorry. Um, otherwise, we'll just keep going. What are you going. saying, Heather? <laughs> I'm saying that I myself am guilty of the same things you and Richard are, <laughs> and that Liz and Carol may need to be bossy with us. <laughs> Liz and Lisa and I are mansplainers by nature. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so here's our quote. That was a good sure. start. Thank you, everyone. Um, so Peter writes. Um, as a long-term supporter of early childhood education and care, and we should note that he's from the UK if we haven't done this already, yep. um, because some terminology may be a little bit different. I should feel pleased by the crescendo of voices, researchers, governments, international organizations that call today for more services, but I do not. Listening time and again to these voices talking the same narrative, I find myself increasingly ill at ease. Is there more to this than unease than grumpy old age? I think so. And for several reasons, there you have it. So what this, what this reminded me of is, um, uh, and I think maybe this, uh, I, I said, or really 
the first time I said it on a podcast was Lisa, when I joined you and Jeff for the very first time on childcare bar and grill. Um, and, and I talked about how, and I've said it subsequently many times, but I've talked about how happy we all were that people were even talking about early childhood. Um, and it was part of this, here's what, here's the value we can get if we pay attention to early childhood conversation. We got so excited to be in the boat that we became afraid to rock the boat. And, um, and we've sort of, I guess, lost our voice in that. And, and what, I, what I got from, from reading this piece from Peter Moss was, oh, there are other thinkers who are thinking that way and, um, uh, and, and sort of what so many of the people we talk about on the podcast do gave language to my instinct. Mm. Um, so that was, that was what caught me for this, um, for this article and this topic. Um, I've even, even felt that although we are happy that people are noticing early childhood and saying that there is return on the investment, we are being told how to talk about our profession. And I have even been invited to uh, leadership institutes and advocacy groups in Albany. And when I have wanted to talk about what we do, and use the language that I think is authentic to help people understand child development, words like play and words like care. I've been told, don't use those words. Mm -hmm. I have seriously been told, if you wanna be at the table, you need to talk this talk. Mm -hmm. So what it comes back to is what are we trying to prove and what is the true wealth of a nation? What do we value? If we only value humans because they are, I don't know, earning money, because they are not in prison. <laughs> yeah, well, what he, he refers to it here as human capital, right? We're, yeah. we're talking about human capital as sort of commodities. These children are commodities that we can somehow mold into future money-making opportunities <laughs> or... Um, or, uh, or people that are worthy according to a very slight definition of worthy people. Um, if we're talking about narrow definitions of worthiness and staying out of prison, can we talk about the unbelievable bias that is in this narrative? This exactly. idea that children who attend early care and education programs do better in school later because they're indoctrinated earlier. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's I guess that's one piece that that we can um, sort of pull out and and specifically talk about. So one of the investment investments that is a part of this narrative is just what you said, Liz. If we can get if we can get them into these early childhood programs, they will have better success in school. So that's one piece. Um, and Richard, I think that's kind of what you were starting to talk about with universal pre-K being the idea that we were going to take to um, to take advantage of this opportunity um, of, of having kids who do better in school. But, but it all comes down to how are we defining do better in school? So what, can we talk about that a little bit? Compliant. How quick can we make them compliant? And are they really doing better in school? Because if we look at the programs that have been developed with this narrative, 
telling this story about investment, if we look at No Child Left Behind, if we look at the variety of uh, sort of institutionalized UPK programs, some of them wonderful, but some of them really uh, not fitting into what we might consider a play-based developmentally appropriate program. If we look at those programs, have they been successful? Because what some of the studies are telling us is that expulsion rates are super high in these programs. So programs that are designed to reach the marginalized communities are designed so that children can't be successful. And they're designed more rigidly to train these children. And so by having these higher expulsion rates, they, they, the rest of their data looks fantastic because they've been able to train these particular children. So of course, the ones who graduate from their programs about elementary schools look highly successful. Yeah. And I like how he says that every, every study that we repeatedly um, bring into the light to make this point is subjective, you know, and, and we are drawing correlations and conclusions from sort of the study of human development. It, it, there's nothing that's really objective. Um, even like in the abecedarian study, um, we say that these kids did better because they had this early experience. Um, but what does do better mean? And, and was the, the success from the fact that this program started when children were really young, when they were babies. So they had, their families had supportive care that removed a lot of toxic stress from families who didn't have to worry about their children being cared for, um, financial stress. So what is the correlation just between having care and not having to worry about paying for childcare um, as opposed to the correlation of learning your ABCs when you're three and that's gonna make you successful in the future. Yeah, in the article he calls, um, so he talks about the dominant, dominant narrative. So the investment narrative is part of that or the dominant discourse. And that's sort of, you know, the people in power have decided what success looks like and what kind of people they want, what kind of a product they want at the end of this assembly line um, and, and excluded any other kinds of stories. So in this case, it's this, I think what, what we're talking about is this idea that um, quality looks like a certain checklist, a very specific checklist and school readiness is sort of the first gate, um, the first level of checklists maybe. Um, but what he, he calls that naive and reductionist. And I think that's what you just reminded me of Carol, that that's maybe one story that they get their ABCs, um, and their numbers and their shapes. But what they're missing is this whole piece about how long they got that support and what did the support look like and were the families included and were other elements that provide barriers to people um, addressed or were we just planning on this um, Bracken school readiness test that we give them at the end of it all um, to, to determine whether, whether they're going to be good or not after these you know, years in their universal pre-K program. And why does, Lisa, I'm risking talking. You've been doing so, I've never seen you be quiet this long. It's I know, I was watching best. both your faces to I know. see signs of struggle. But, <laughs> I know, but I'm a dude, so I'm jumping in. No, just um, Okay. Um, oh man, I'm an old dude. I keep forgetting my thoughts. Um, well, that school, the Bracken school readiness test. The question is, what is it, was, what is it testing? And who decided that those were, uh, those were the skills or areas of knowledge that 
to find school readiness. And so earlier when I heard Liz and Carol talking, what I heard underneath what they were saying, uh, just to go down there, if y'all want to, is white supremacy and mm -hmm. patriarchy. Yeah. And I think it's difficult to have this conversation without, to me, those are the two elephants in the middle of the room. And we have to kind of talk about those. Mm -hmm. So I actually have been considering, I mean, gender bias in ECE is a massive topic, right? But it's also a female dominated field, right? 96, 98% of early educators are female. Yep. And oh, you'll have to forgive me because I cannot cite this, but I know that I read that feminine behaviors, you know, the quiet, the mm -hmm. preferring the reading and the sitting are so highly favored in ECE environments mm -hmm. that, I mean, of course, there is an element of patriarchy in the feminized behaviors, but I think that there's a heavy bias. I know the research tells us there's a heavy bias against boys in early education settings. So I think that's a significant piece within this as well, if we're talking about gender as a whole. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely a big piece of expulsion, right? Absolutely. Uh, the, the, what is it? I think it's like above 80% of the expulsion are is boys. And mm -hmm. and the, the percentage of, of children who are identified with special needs, you know, whether they're labeled ADHD or or behavior, you know, non-compliant or whatever, the, the, the huge percentage is boys as well. Yeah. So so and within that it tilts towards boys of color. Yeah. Of course. Of course. So the question is why? Why? And I know what I've always seen throughout my career through the, you know, 30 years, I, I was in, I was actually in Gainesville, Florida when I first started um, my career. So I was, you know, it, there, there were just these stark differences in what I saw of the upper middle-class college educated parents sending their children to these progressive preschools where children had choices and children had play and children were, engaged in these sort of joyful life activities, you know, um, and then these other programs that were subsidized for the poor children and um, predominantly children of color and ethnicity um, that didn't have those opportunities to make choices and play. They were skill and drill kind of programs. And then these two narratives, well, those kids need these kind of things to get ready for school. So, I mean, I think that puts it kind of in black and white terms in terms of like, wow, there is a huge divide between sort of accessibility to play-based developmental programs that would be more welcoming to boys. <laughs> Well, okay. So I guess such I a downer so far. Go, Richard, right. go. Oh, well, uh, um, I think I've said this on a previous podcast. I, this is just what, what you said, Carol, what the thought that bubbled up for me. Um, you know, Bill, Bill Ayers, Ayers, how yeah. do you say his last name? Uh, for anyone who doesn't know who he is, back when uh, President Obama was first running for office, um, uh, some of the ways that they that the his opposition were trying to take him down were to say, look at his preacher and the horrible things his preacher said, and look at this communist friend of his. And they were referring to Bill Ayers, <laughs> who's a professor in Chicago. And Bill made a really interesting point that I've never forgotten about early childhood um, and, and education in general. 
Um, and that is uh, that um, this idea of critical thinking, um, the value of um, problem solving and critical thinking is very much a middle-class um, value that, um, that communities of poor people uh, want their children to um, do well in life, whatever it takes. And so they're more interested, this is his theory, in the, in the what did you say, Carol, skill and drill? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so that their kids can um, move along higher through the system rather than challenging the system. And the very wealthy are also only interested in their children maintaining that same position. They don't really care or value critical thinking. They just want their children to get the best grades and get into the best school so that they can make the most money later. So for me, that was really a, that's a thought that stayed with me since I first heard that and seems really related to the conversation we're having. I don't know what you all think about it. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's hard to place those kind of values on a, on a whole, you know, you know like middle well, sure. class or upper class people, sure. uh, uh, poor people. Um, I don't know. I think, I think that we put so much weight on early childhood educators and on the backs of children by wanting them to solve society's problems. So um, along with that is a false narrative that if we got it right in early childhood, we could change society because yeah, we can do a lot of good by, by getting it right at the start. But you know, there's a lot of other systems that need to contribute and children are our future, but so are adults. Adults are our future too. <laughs> so I know for me as a child who grew up in poverty, I didn't have a rich life of books and literacy. Um, I didn't really learn how to read. I was pretty, pretty, I did poorly in school. So the thing that saved me was access to college. So, you know, what are all the different ways we can shift society and grow society, even if our goal is financial, you know, it's got to be more than early childhood. What about poverty? What, what about prisons? What about um, high school? What about college? What are all these different avenues that we can um, rely upon to make a shift? And, and putting all that on the back of young children is, is really not fair. And it's really a false narrative because this whole idea that if kids don't love books when they're three, they're never going to learn to read and write is not true. Mm -hmm. It's just not true. Yeah. So um, that's a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight we're putting on our, on our little ones. And their, and their caregivers. And their I was caregivers. just going to say that Heather and, and the people that are around them who um, depending on their own experience, might or might not drink the Kool-Aid of this particular narrative, you know, mm -hmm. um, if they haven't, if they didn't experience anything different, their own selves, I think they're going to be more likely to say, oh, all right, you know, this is what my boss, right? It just, it's just a horrible, vicious cycle. My boss is telling me to do this. And so I'm going to do it because I need the money because I need to keep my lights on and da, 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 da. So I can't afford to rock the boat to go back to how we all said. And, and I think you're right. We did get so excited. I, I mean, I thought right out the gate about Elizabeth uh, Jones's 
quote from the late 90s that we did such a good job convincing everybody that what we did was important that we unintentionally gave our power up and now we've been <laughs> screaming trying to get it back but it's so now diluted that we we don't even know where to where to go to do it and then we look as a profession like we're bickering with each other because we don't understand what each other is saying because we've got 99 different narratives. And mm -hmm. so then the outsiders looking in are like, well, shoot, they don't even got their stuff together. So we'll go keep making decisions for them because they can't <laughs> even get on the same page. And, and it can be very frustrating and over overwhelming. Um, yeah. You know, I think it's, I think there's room to shine light on, you know, other narratives. Mm -hmm. You know, but then at this at the risk of now having so many narratives that we then keep making it confusing. <laughs> well, one maybe, of the maybe, oh. maybe at the root of this of this narrative is that we need to fix children. You know, and that's and what I was going to say. This is we, very we much need to fix. We need to focused fix. on deficits. Yeah, yeah, it is focused on deficits. So we this whole idea that we're fixing others, that we're changing others, instead of you know sort of allowing humans to grow and sort of making a good life for people yeah seeing and that is really ugly when you think about the the sort of racial implications yep. and and how to reach um you know marginalized communities who who deserve access equal access to educational opportunities that's that's not a good place to start fixing people yeah. so i wanted to look at um one of the other things that he says um uh, is that this, this investment narrative and really conversations about quality in general. And he talks a lot about quality in other, in other places, other pieces and their definition. Um, and, and says that we seem to have, or we seem to believe that a very tightly defined program will produce good results. And that sort of reminded me or brought me to the, the quality rating systems and licensing regulations and, and accreditation standards and things like that. And that seems to be right now, when, when we talk about quality in the field, that's where most people's minds go. And certainly where families' minds will go because that's what they've been sold is that they need to look for a high quality program and they all should look the same. If they're quality, they should look the same. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about that or hear about that a little bit too. Like what, what could be different about that? Or what, what flaws are there in that idea that everything has to look the same so that we can manage quality outcomes when we're talking about kids under- People. <laughs> People. It's like the blueberry story, mm -hmm. which, you know, you, you can't turn back the- the kids because the blueberries are busted you, you got to figure out what to do with all of it and so it there's it's impossible to make it all look the same and you, you know the caring piece carol i mean i'm, I'm kind of late to your party and and the, the the lens that you are bringing to my world and i'm so grateful for heather that she threw your name out and i've been doing a deep dive with your work as well oh, and um and, and I think that that is the piece that had been missing is that, you know, you, if the caring piece gets taken aside, you, where it doesn't matter how accredited you are. I mean, and the listeners on your show have heard me say this on every show I've ever been on. It doesn't matter how many stars you have, how many master's degree level teachers you have, if you're forgetting or choosing to not look at the fact that kid is hungry or tired or dad got arrested again or or by golly just cut the tag off the back of my shirt for crying out loud you know it it doesn't need to be a big thing 
in order to be worthy of our caring about it. And by big thing, I think some of, you know, some of the bigger scenarios that we perhaps can imagine in our heads, it can, my dog died. I didn't get the second banana. And it doesn't matter how good you are, it's circle time. I think that that caring piece, and, and Heather and I, I know have talked about it before, is just that that hierarchy, you know, that we triage what is more important than the other. And, and we give more credibility and value to the teaching part of what we're doing because we're already aligned with a profession in a profession that doesn't appear to get a lot of respect and, and um, isn't seen as ultimately as important as it should be. I mean, and, and all yeah. of these things I think that we talk about all kind of dance with each other 100%. And it's it's almost, you know, you, you, you we read an article that seems like it's gonna be really specific and only shoot to find out that it comes <laughs> back to the same five things, you know, that, that, that we're always talking about. Mm -hmm. If you're only looking at the money, you're ignoring the caring piece. Right. The other appeal of the investment narrative then is that we as teachers get, um, we do get a little bit of a boost from saying, yes, what I do is impacting the world for years and years and years. And I'm not saying that it doesn't. And I don't think that's what he's saying. He's just saying, that's not the only story. That's not the only piece that's important. And it certainly can't be done through a checklist of, of standards. <laughs> I, and I, one of the, and I've, I've been having a, a, a tricky time trying to formulate how, how I want to say this. So at the end of the day, I'm not necessarily convinced I want to be aligned or associated with a program that puts all its eggs into this particular investment narrative because it requires me to compromise what I know is best practice. Mm. And so I, I choose, you know, if, if, if you're only going to give me that amount of money because of that investment narrative that you drank the Kool-Aid for, but now the program that you are creating that you now want me to be a part of looks like drill and kill and one, two, three, and eyes on me and crisscross applesauce and sit still, be quiet and checklist and checklist and QRS and Eckers and Itters and Fetkers and blah, 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 blah. I will say no, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say no, thank you because it requires me to compromise just, you know, even before I became familiar with like, like, oh, wow shoot, I didn't realize we've set up caring and teaching to be a, another false dichotomy here in, in, our, in our profession. Huh, let's take a look at that. But I, I don't wanna be a part of that kind of a program. Mm -hmm. Lisa, are you saying that because there's this investment narrative that the people who take money are tied into a contract that someone is saying to them, oh, yeah. we totally. will invest you, we will invest you, yeah. but we want to see this X, There's, Y. Yeah, there is no free lunch, no free lunch. <laughs> and it, it's like when I tell teachers and they complain like, oh, well, I'm a part of this program, so I can't X, Y, Z or whatever they're telling me they can't do because they're aligned with it. I'm like, you knew that when you took the job. So but do you think, do you think that's an interpretation? I mean, I have, I have worked oh, yeah. at accredited programs and I have got, you know, um, I, I haven't always loved what I've had to do, but I have said to my teachers, well, this digging this hole in this sandbox is a science curriculum. Right. You're yeah. doing it. We might need to find this way to talk about it, but we're doing it. Yeah. So do you think there's ways to take that money and do play? She's got a whole 
language of the wolves piece about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you talked about right? <laughs> yeah, what to say so when the is wolves it about interpretation or is it really a contract that you have to use those? I think well, it depends gross. on the people who are in charge of the program and what their own personal experience <clears throat> and comfort level. For me, 100% is verbiage and interpretation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm right? Because I'll find that loophole. I will find that loophole. But it also, surprise, it also comes back to relationships. How is my relationship with my licensor? How is my relationship with my monitor, with my director, with my supervisor, my superintendent? Do they trust me? Do they trust that I'm not trying to find a workaround because I'm lazy, but I'm trying to find a way to infuse best practice into this program and still take your money? Mm-hmm. without selling my soul to the early childhood devil. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, Carol, you used the term much earlier, subjectivity, you know, which is, which should be the nature of our field, right? Treating each child and family as individuals. I mean, that's, that's what we, that, that's what many of us value and, and strive for. But, you know, um, in terms of this conversation, I agree with everything Lisa just said, and um, much of it is out of our control because of the subjectivity of the people who are um, interpreting those standards. Um, you know, right? I, Liz just looked at the heavens just now. I saw that. Um, and I'm dying to hear from, from Liz because I know she yeah. has some very uh, strong and smart opinions about quality rating improvement mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, um, so I'm going to just try to set that up and say that back in the day, 20 years ago, when I was helping a particular state create their quality improvement rating system, part of that process was training the state licensors on how to use the tool so that there was quote unquote, inter-rater reliability. Yeah. So that there was standardization of how they used that tool. And what I learned anecdotally through that experience is that is an impossible task. Mm-hmm. Um, those people inherently are random and diverse human beings. And no matter how we try to do it, they're going to use that tool differently. And while building a relationship with a licensor is important, sometimes that's not even relevant because there are some licensors you can build a relationship with and others who this is how I interpret it. And I don't care what you, how you try to convince me that this is play. Um, you don't get points for that because mm-hmm. I'm very black and white. And that's how I interpret that standard. Whereas the, the early childhood program down the street has a different licensor who says, oh yeah, I get the digging the hole is play. That makes sense. Okay, more that's points. Science. Yeah. yeah. All right, Liz. <laughs> a lot of pressure now. <laughs> I just did like a seven minute presentation. I wasn't ready for all this. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, I think in terms of the quality rating and improvement systems and the idea of the investment narrative, there is research to go way back to the beginning of the conversation in terms of the assessments, right? Uh, Everything I was reading a couple weeks ago came back to the Peabody picture vocabulary test. Is that? Yeah. I I think test might be the wrong word, but you know what I'm talking about. It's test is in the name. It's the PVVT. Right. Right. Oh, okay. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Got thrown off. Um, <laughs> so there is, I mean, I think I'm stuck on when we're looking at the quality of programs and the quality of educators, and we're looking at this idea of, like Lisa was saying, right, where there are teachers who want to bring this idea to their programs that have such rigid directors or rigid quote unquote standards or specific checklists they need to meet. 
I think it actually comes back more to educator preparedness. If we're in a field that doesn't Sorry, I'm really stuck on how to phrase this because I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> We're in a field that doesn't require a lot of education to join. There's a very right. low barrier to entry. Yeah. And at the same time, I do not want to overlook the fact that formal education is not at all the end all be all. <laughs> <laughs> I would just like to say that and okay. Noted. elaborate more. Um, but this idea that you can jump in and have a classroom right out of high school if you interview real well and the center's really desperate, sometimes you need the checklist when you're starting. Sure. And yeah. I think this idea that quality is beyond these quality rating and improvement systems might almost put too much faith in the field as a whole, which I really <laughs> feel icky saying. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a starting point. And I think the trick is that <coughs> that four-star center is maybe not as good as the one down the road that chose to not be rated. Mm -hmm. But again, we've sold parents on this idea. We've sold communities on this idea. And in fact, one of the papers that I was just reading said that one of the intentions of the quality rating system was to shut down programs that scored lower and let capitalism do its thing. And yeah those lower quality programs. Capitalism, man. Um, so, but I, th I think they can be a tool. I mean, you made a good point, Liz, the checklist is maybe necessary for some. And I think that's sort of come up in many different parts of this conversation is that um, the investment narrative might have, and Lisa, you talked about this, if this is the tool that's going to work in this situation, then let's, let's bring it out. But it can't be the only way that we're ever looking at the work we're doing with young children, and with the people who care for them. Line. Yeah. A baseline, not a ceiling. So many of those things become the cap yeah. and it should be a launch pad, you know? And you then to what you said about like the four star centers, like in theory, you like to think that there could be somebody mentor, some kind of a buddy system relationships that is happening, you know, between that high schooler that's fresh out and now has a classroom, you know, of mm -hmm. their own. And so who's, who's assisting, who's guiding, but yet we know from doing this work for collectively now a hundred years I'm looking at right here. You don't, you get thrown in by the seat of your pants. You get told, you know, what time to be in the lunchroom and you, you figure, you figure it out on the fly. So, oh, it's so many layers of conversation. Here. Yeah. I want to, I think about um, Bev boss's program, right. And she staunchly refused uh, to participate in any rating system. Yeah, um, because she understood exactly what we're talking about. And it resulted in what for me was probably the greatest, most effective, however you define that, which is part of this challenge we're talking about, um, early childhood program that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And it had no stars because she refused to participate in that program. So on paper or on your computer screen, uh, if you're a young parent who doesn't know any better, you'd think, oh, that's probably not a good program, right? Yeah. As far as those tools go, what I'm reminded of is, you know, some of my, um, uh, I can't think of the word, ways of looking at my early childhood classroom. So there's a great difference between, uh, like this morning online, I saw some video of uh, one of those cutesy preschool sites that had the, a numer had the plastic Easter eggs. <clears throat> 
and it had the number on one half of the Easter egg and the number of dots on the bottom. And they had children match them up, right? That's not inherently a bad thing. I would be happy to put that in my math center and any child that wanted to play with that, it's there for them. But that's very different than making every child sit down and play with the eggs now at 10 a.m. because it's math time. So those tools, like Eckers, it's a good tool for someone who wants to take it on and use it and who doesn't, you know, doesn't have a lot of knowledge or information. But that's a whole different scenario than being required to use it by everyone in the country or in your state, right? Yeah. Yep. And I also want to say, I also want to go back to, to Carol because, you know, I've never met Carol, but this woman has just uh, transformed my life just in the recent months. I can't even say it enough. Um, you get sick of it, Carol? No. <laughs> Thank you. Well, but the thing is what Carol has done for me, she'll do something different for people who are new to this field. Mm -hmm. But for me, what she's done is she's validated and put words to um, everything that's been in my mind and heart for decades and allowed me to focus it. And so what I want to just say from that is, and Lisa said this earlier, I'm just sort of saying it in a different way, which is why, well, it goes back to the Betty Jones quote. And why are we all scrambling to meet someone else's standards about uh, how children will be in the future when we should feel very proud, I don't know if that's the right word, of simply caring for them today. Mm -hmm. Honored. That's it's what I feel honor has to today. Offer. It's an honor to care for them today. Yeah. Why should Carol be made to not say play and care? Um, that's a really dangerous uh, direction that members of our field are taking. Mm -hmm. And I would well, say, go on. When I, was a, when I was using accreditation, I was a new director at a school in Poughkeepsie and we had, it was at a, a you know, very, um, a community college. We had a lot of single moms, single dads, young parents, a lot of black and brown children. And we used accreditation standards to grow together as teachers. And I was guiding, I was guiding it. So I was the one saying like, you're cooking, soup you're making soup with those kids that is your math and science for today great let's take a picture of it let's check it off on the list you're digging in the garden and we really worked on an outside every day in all seasons program we had a wonderful cook we worked on meals with the families we really worked on building this culture of care and so we used the tools to to make ourselves feel good and to have, like you said, a standard. And when we went through the accreditation, our lowest score was in science. And I thought to myself, that's so interesting. We're outside every day in all seasons and all weather. We have a little garden. We have a cook who is helping us plan meals with the children. I mean, do they not see, I, we didn't have, I guess we didn't have the science experiments that they could, you know, but we had this real life of care. Um, so we use those tools, but we didn't get the highest score in science. I didn't even tell the teachers what their scores were. You, because... you didn't have the three to five items from the approved catalog on your no. shelf. No, we didn't. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I don't know. That's just interesting that, that care, again, I felt the care was not valued. The cooking and eating and playing and digging in the garden was not was not a value that that, that could be seen on the day that the accreditor came. Right. And why are we as a field um, being forced to adhere to standards that are being created by and evaluated by people who don't understand early childhood education? 
they don't they can walk in the room and not understand that that sensory table is science and so you get a bad score mm-hmm. people who wrote the standards themselves don't understand early childhood education and care so they don't know what to tell the evaluators yeah. to look for correctly yeah. which and is part the whole of the dug ourselves narrative in. so much power because that's much easier to explain. Lisa, you've been cut off twice. What did you want to say? Okay. Sorry, Lisa. No, 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 not at all. No, it's like a cocktail party. This yeah. is why I love this. Um, choosing to get a two is different than not getting a five. Mm-hmm. And right. so when Ginsburg was the keynoter at Washington State AEYC conference a hundred years ago, when he was still executive director of NAYC, and his opening statement was that if you're not an accredited program, you're not a quality program. Ah. The article that I wrote on the plane, uh, <laughs> hope from that session was uh, choosing to not get accredited. And that has been my angle on, and I realize where this is a slippery slope into a whole other conversation, yeah. but that's been my position since then. Choosing to not be accredited is different than not getting accredited, mm-hmm. right. 100%. The other thing that, and Heather knows this about me too, um, is just, I'm such a verbiage nut, so focused on the language. If I had a parent come in and say, are you a high quality program? Or I am looking for a high quality program. I would be flipping that around instantly. Tell me what you mean by that. Right. What does that look like? Specifically, are you looking at? And I have for the I have learned the power of burden of proof. Sounds like I'm giving them a challenge, and it's not. And it's not being done with any kind of maliciousness, or I'm trying to test you. It's just that if you're going to walk into the space as a parent, as a anybody, and use buzzword language. I am going to ask you to define and paint me a picture of what that, that what that is. And, and anybody can be taught how to do that, that little kind of language strategy, a communication strategy. The, tr- the tricky part for people in early childhood is then waiting in the quiet <laughs> while they form their thoughts. Yeah. Because we will jump instantly into putting words in their mouth um, to, to, again, to get to resolution because I, you, I only got 20 minutes for the tour and da, 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 and being willing to sit there and wait. Yeah. And what you said is, what does that look like? So you're, it's what's the image? I think the image yeah. is powerful, right? So we are trying to change the image. What does that look like? And Peter Moss has the beautiful little quote at the end where he says, oh. This is the early childhood center, a place of movement and experimentation, not of enclosure and taming, Mm -hmm. not of governing and standardizing. This is the early childhood center that welcomes the unexpected, the new wonder, surprised, uncertainty and subjectivity. So how do we build that image? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been trying to work that quote in. Thank I you, I love Carol. that. I, I did too. Heard around it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm no, mad you mentioned. Good. No, well, I was going to say that quote for anybody who's rapidly becoming a, a Peter Moss junkie <laughs> slides so beautifully into his other article called "Why Can't We Get Beyond Quality," where he actually, uh, unless I'm kind of reading and interpreting it incorrectly, he gives us some vocabulary to guide 
a new narrative mm -hmm. or and not I, I don't think it's new new like oh, new it might be new to me new to right. you you know or putting language to the narrative that we maybe feel in our soul yeah. that should be more of what people do describe when you say what specifically are you looking for in a program so I can tell you if there is or is not a fit here and and if along the way that meant that you jumped through the hoops and got accredited well then fine right that but but and it, it means that you realize, like I've already said, that it's the, it's not the be all end all. There's more to it. You know, I got in trouble one time because I told people a, a, somebody was complaining about having to be aligned with Eckers. And I was like, you know, at the end of the day, if you're not already doing what's in Eckers, we need to have a whole other conversation. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. right. Like that should be the biggest baseline in the world. <laughs> yeah. Right. Really? How hard is it to squat down and say good morning? Like that's a challenge for who's working here? <laughs> Come on, man. It is a challenge for some. I'm sorry yeah, to tell you. I was going to say it is. Yeah. Um. So, so it's getting around to where I have to wrap it up because we've got another recording session. Although most of you are already here for the next recording session. It's just Emma that's waiting. Um, but is there anything that, that isn't going to be another hour <laughs> in the article that you wanted to, to talk about or that you loved or was challenged by or anything like that? Well, I was just going to say, Heather, let's gather this exact same group, the, the five of us together again, mm -hmm. for the other Moss article that Lisa just referenced. Mm -hmm. So now okay. we've talked about the narrative. Let's all five of us get back together and talk about his ideas for what we could do to change yeah. it. Okay. I'm and then let's, let's let make Lisa and I promise to be quiet. You don't have to promise to be quiet. We just okay. have to pause every now and again. I can't do that. <laughs> It's all or nothing with me. Yeah. And if you like the quality article, you'll love the books. <laughs> it's just going to go on and on. Um, well, thank you. We went in a lot of directions on this and I knew we would. Um, but I, I am excited about, uh, about another conversation and keeping it going. So thank you all. Um, and thanks everybody for listening. Come back again for another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. Goodbye. Bye-bye. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.